Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for season three, where we can continue to explore all things sports coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Three excellent guests join me again this week, so please, could you introduce yourselves and tell us your current role? Hello, my name is Edward Hall. I'm a researcher, educator, mentor, and consultant in sport coaching, and I currently work at Northumbria University. I'm Ryan Thomas. I'm a lecturer at Plymouth Marjon University. Um, I've also got a background in sports development as a sports development officer, coach educator, and I'm also still a practicing coach. My name's uh, Adam Nicholl. I'm a teaching fellow at Durham University, a coach with Northumberland Cricket Board's Pathway and a coach developer with the ECB at the moment. Absolutely fantastic. Gents, a real pleasure to have all of you on. Um, really keen to, to get into this discussion. Uh, just before we do, quick reminder for anyone listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content we discuss and recommendations to other high quality content. So, uh, Ed, we are coming over to you to kick us off. What is it you're going to talk to us about? The thing I've chosen to talk about is something that I picked up again recently, having seen it a long time ago, um, because we got... Disney Plus during lockdown, keep the kids entertained. And lo and behold, there was Remember the Titans, the film from way back in 2000. And actually I use this film as a, or at least snippets of it as a teaching resource on my final year module at Northumbria University. And so I have to acknowledge as well that um, it was actually Professor Paul Potrack who was the, the one who initially sort of suggested how we might use this film as a, a way to explore some of the important issues that I'm going to to talk about. Um, so the film for a bit of background is set in the 1970s in the state of Virginia in America and it's based on the true story of a black American football coach who's portrayed by Denzel Washington. Uh, there's a bit of Hollywood dramatic license in terms of a true story um, but it's a great storyline and there's a fantastic cast and the soundtrack's really good as well. Now, what this film does is it, it traces the struggles of the coaches and the players, as well as their wider families and communities, as they sort of struggle to adapt to the recent integration of what were previously racially segregated public schools. And of course, then, obviously, the integration of the school's American football team. And obviously, diversity and inclusion remains a really important issue and still, sadly, has great relevance to us in sport and, and brighter, broader society. Not just in terms of race, of course, but ethnicity, in terms of gender, sexuality, age, uh, disability, and so on. However, if you look beyond these sort of bigger societal issues, it's actually the more subtle features of the real-world coaching in the film that really caught my eye. And that obviously caught the eye of, of Hollywood as well in terms of wanting to tell an engaging and authentic story about this world. Um, I think it's actually interesting that the, the producers and the director really zoomed in on these central features of coaching. But it raises questions, I think, for coach education and development, because ironically, it's these things that make the film feel so familiar to me and to other coaches who watch it. And yet it's also these things about what it means to be a coach that have traditionally been absent from or under-researched or 
under appreciated within the training and development courses that are offered to practitioners. So in terms of a couple of specifics about what I love about this film, we're talking here about the fact that coaching is fundamentally a social activity. It can't be completed without social interaction. And because of these interactions, uh, which are intentional and typically occur over a period of time, coaching is also fundamentally about relationships. Now, people do often talk about the coach-athlete relationship, but as the film shows, this is a pretty simplistic approach to understanding what goes on in the real world because a coach's relationship with any one player never occurs in a, in a vacuum, in isolation from other interactions and relationships. Instead, they're always enmeshed together in a much wider and more complex web of, of relationships. So how the, treat, the coach treats uh, one athlete in public will have implications how the other athletes around at that time might expect to be treated and will therefore act towards the coach themselves. And I don't think we give enough thought to this currently. The second point would be that in this film, coaches interact with and must attempt to generate productive working relationships with a, a range of different stakeholders stakeholders that go beyond the athletes we typically focus on. So these include people like co-coaches and board members and parents and the support services that are often available. So as the film highlighted, the coach's key role is actually one of, of trying to influence and persuade various people because generating buy-in and alignment, dealing with conflict and repairing relationships are therefore essential skills and and this isn't just about the fluffy stuff, you know, or the soft social skills we might talk about often. It's, it's about the tough stuff, the tough social skills, like being able to negotiate robustly and to stand your ground in the face of opposition, staying true to your mission and values, again, in the face of significant pressures. And underpinning this is the fact that when we coach, we encounter significant challenges in doing our jobs well, just as the coach in this film does. So I suppose within this, there's four key elements. The first is that we, we only ever exert limited control over, over others. You know, Denzel was, was a pretty tough coach, quite authoritarian. And yet in the film, people still resisted him. So he was never in total command of things. The second point is that coaches also have limited awareness of what's happening in their environments. So we can't always know what people are truly thinking and feeling and so we're constantly making decisions in the face of incomplete information. The third point is that the various stakeholders that the coach was interacting with held sometimes contradictory beliefs and expectations, not only to the coach, but also to one another. And so if we want to get people on side and keep them on side, we need to be quite astutely capable of considering their different interests and motives and thinking strategically and deeply about how it is we're going to go about getting them to follow our lead. And then as a final point, just to add sort of further complexity to all of this, which again was really evident in the film, the strategies that the coach might use, which might be influential with one person or group, are never guaranteed to work in the same way with any other person or group nor are they likely to be consistently successful with the same people over time. And so just to sort of bring all of that together, I think the film really helped me to look at a number of key features of coaching that are currently underserved or ignored in the majority of coach education and development content. And, and perhaps people would watch this film again with, with a different set of 
goggles on almost noticing some of the things that that i've tried to highlight there fantastic thank you no it's a really great start i, I love the fact that you've stated you got disney just because of the kids when you know we all know we really got it for us as adults and it's a benefit if the kids get to watch it as well so um i, I guess my first question is and i've kind of touched on this before but actually how much do you think um we learn from coaching from hollywood and I'm always of the mind that we, yes, we may get to experience, even as like our first steps into coaching will have always, the, the chances are will have been coached or will have seen some coaching, but an awful lot of sports movies have done really well at the box office. And, and I'm just wondering what level of influence actually do we get from films like this and Coach Carter and all these types of things? And actually do they, when you look at it in this kind of detail, maybe they are, there is a bit of reality in there um, as, as well as the kind of the glitz and the glamour, or is there a danger of the, the, the classic Al Pacino halftime speech and all those types of things? Is there a danger that we get a complete misconception of coaching from what we see in the movies? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because in some ways these movies encapsulate, at least for me, a lot of what it meant when I started out coaching, this belief that sport could serve this fantastic purpose. It could bring people together that I could be, of value to my community and, and wider social life because I could help people and bring something to the equation. And I think a lot of that summed up in a lot of the films that you mentioned that, that, that sport is this fantastic um, social phenomenon that can bring people together and spans and, and can bridge a number of significant gaps. But equally at the same time, the story of coaching told in these stories and films, they they often paint the coach in the picture of, of being a sort of superhero that engages in these incredibly heroic and um, uh, yeah, successful acts of influence and persuasion and immediate changes in the outlook or, or perspective of those people that they're working with. And in reality, um, although we may have one or two of those types of moments in our careers as coaches, in reality, what we're doing all the time are these much more subtle steering motions of nudging people and gently influencing influencing them as we're responding to and picking up on the emergent nature of of the interactions that we're having and, and and our understanding of the settings that we're in and i think that that's one of the things that we find so valuable about remember the titans because a lot of that heroic stuff um you can you can look past it and actually get to grips with some of these more complex and subtle realities, the nuances of what it means to actually be a coach, which is the stuff that when you then tie it in with the research that's currently being doing by some fantastic scholars, it, that's where their attention is. It's on this nitty gritty, nuanced, micro level interactive stuff, um, which is really where the future of our development as a, as a, a discipline and area practically and theoretically will be. And I, I think you've nailed it there. I also wonder if that's the, the piece that we maybe just don't see initially. We see good coaches and, and I often wonder about the, the kind of the transition of um, kind of ex-professionals straight into coaching. Do, do they see, well, I can, I understand the game and I can, I could tell somebody what to do on the grass or I, I can, you know, like almost kind of regurgitate um, some of the stuff. And I think this is probably what any new coach would do, but it's the, almost the hard work of coaching is in developing those relationships and understanding them. So I, I kind of open this question out, but I'm, I was trying to think back when you were talking then to actually how much of, of any kind of 
formal or informal coach education really talked about relationships and I'm wondering where you guys would kind of suggest that either coach education needs to go in in terms of developing better coaches who understand and can develop stronger and, and increased and more efficient relationships or actually is there is there just somewhere else we need to be looking at this type of stuff because it's clearly something we would have in our everyday life but again it, I don't ever other than that kind of awkward advice you maybe get from some people when you're having you know girlfriend or boyfriend trouble or something like that how much do people ever sit you down and go well this is how relationships work and this is what emotional intelligence is and, and there's just so much to this that we're kind of expected to know because we do it away from coaching and again not necessarily successfully it, it's this huge part of coaching I would argue that just kind of goes well yeah you, you'll be fine with that we'll just look at the technical tactical you know technical tactical stuff so um yeah interesting in, in where you think or how you think we go about maybe uh developing that within everyday coaching I don't mind jumping in here I mean I think from from my experiences of being a coach educator I think even from that role and also being a candidate on many of the courses the reality was it was rarely covered that those types of, it was about the X's and the O's. And um, I would say that many of those experiences and being able to deal with people with their different backgrounds and um, their own motivations and understanding those and appreciating that those will slowly meander and mesh and people may divert off into different routes and so on. I think that comes from those other wider experiences and from what I, it's a sweeping statement to make, but many of the educators that I was in contact with, um, some of the most gifted ones were um, from a teaching background. So they were able to recognize difference, to um, understand each candidate and their own journey and where they were coming from. And there were skills that they had learned in classrooms and in college classrooms, et cetera, all over the country. And um, that I feel was probably where they could add some value. But those particular tutors were able to add that on almost informally and where they were perhaps going a little bit overboard, but sometimes reined in by um, a senior coach educator that would say, well, don't forget, you've got to cover the content, that there's things, you know, you're going a bit off piste here, make sure you stay on message. And that I found quite often, even from my point of view, was a little bit frustrating on many occasions. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I completely agree with what's been said to, to now. I think a lot of it is often assumed to be people implicitly have these skills or it's it's an innate um, trait or characteristic which people have and something which can't be developed, which I would argue isn't the case personally. Um, I think we can develop these skills in and through coach education. And as Ryan and, and Ed mentioned there, I think we develop them in our broader experiences of work, um, of day-to-day -day relationships with family and, and friends. Uh, so there's a lot to be drawn on there. And I think building that into to coach education alongside the, the technical, the technical, which is, is also very important to recognize as well. But I would agree in that there hasn't been probably as much focus on the relationship side of things, the understanding influence, um, who we might need to influence and why, um, what people's agendas are and, and how we might need to navigate or negotiate those. Uh, in a skillful manner and I think that that social element that how we can be positively related to other people and, and positively influence I think often people can sometimes view these things as being inherently negative and um, if we speak about sort of anything to do with politics and everybody thinks oh it's it's a negative term um, whereas actually for me it can be to do with both that, that can be the case but it can also be about collaboration um, negotiation and, and sort of working together positively as, as well yeah, and I think some of the 
the issues where this comes from is that actually when we talk about relationships in our everyday lives and developing the skills there we're not sat at home with people going can I talk to you about what I was thinking around how I'm going to interact with this person it's always implicit isn't it it's always a skill that we've developed implicitly but equally it's a skill that we've developed in context so we've learned how to operate navigate and interact with groups of people within a particular frame or context and then we've learned how to adapt that um, perhaps through errors and, and, and opportunities to fit with different situations, different groups and different contexts. When we go on coach education courses, they're typically decontextualized. So the people that we're typically interacting with, the local realities that we, that we deal with in our everyday practice aren't there. And so one of the ways that we found has been very beneficial to the students and the coaches that we support through professional development initiatives is to work through scenarios and to actually explore, well, how would you deal with this situation in an interactive way? So you've, you've just been approached by two sets of parents who are unhappy about your selection decisions this week. You've agreed to meet with them at, at the weekend separately. How are you gonna plan and prepare for that? What are you gonna be thinking about? What do you understand about their interests in this? And how have you interacted with them previously that might give you a guide towards what's about to come? And then suddenly we can start to unpack what's going on here. And, and for us, really, I think, as Adam rightly said, it's not that the technical, tactical, psychosocial and, uh, and physiological components of coaching are unimportant. It's that they can only work to their, their best, if you like, if they're delivered by people who have a good level of relational astuteness, the ability to interact well with people. Um, and so I, I would see this stuff being at the very core of how we try to support coaches, because I think it would shift the conversation away uh, or it would shift the conversation from being almost exclusively about what to do to suddenly being more about, again, coming back to the film, which I think is so unique about it in some ways, the how and the why. So the film didn't really focus on the X's and the O's and the drills that were done. And the, it was really about the interactions, the how and the why of the coaching that's going on which I, again I found so fascinating yeah and I would, I would say that although that film was obviously based on Hollywood and you know kind of performance and elite environment this is really appropriate for for grassroots community coaching as well the the pressure that a coach is under now in terms of neoliberal coaching environments and all the uh, the, the pressures of getting qualified staying qualified uh, messages from the governing body and understanding what their requirements are on you as the coach, then how that may be in conflict with maybe senior coaches at your own club who may have a, a different view of how you should be developing those players and then different parents within that group and then different player needs within that. I mean, who would be a coach now? Um, it's it's really challenging, even as a volunteer in a, in a role that allegedly carries much less pressure. But um, I think for many novice coaches, they unless they're exposed to it enough, I'm sure the three of us are trying to do our best to do it through degree programs and so on, um, is that unless they're exposed to these realities of coaching, they're quite often then really a rabbit in the headlights in those early sort of a few months in the role and thinking, well, this wasn't covered on my course. Um, I'm really not sure how to deal with this angry person or and we're painting it quite negatively sometimes, or this person is lavishing praise on me and I'm feeling quite uncomfortable about it and how, how I might sort of contextualize that as 
me as a coach? What does this mean for me and my identity? So I think it's, you referred, I think you used the words, the, the fluffy stuff. Uh, it, is, it is perhaps seen as being the fluffy stuff, but I think it, it's as important as the X's, the O's, the technical, the technical. That actually leads quite interestingly into the, the a bit of a, a rabbit hole that was talked around uh, on Twitter this week. And I, I'm not sure who originally tweeted it around teaching and, and around the, the importance or not of relationships and do they even exist, you know, this concept of relationships. And I think Dan Cottrell re, retweeted it and just asked the same from a coaching perspective. And, and there were some just really, really interesting examples around actually is it do, do lots of people consider it the fluffy stuff um and does that but just kind of take away a little bit more of its meaning i i guess some of them were inferring and, and twitter is always difficult for that but actually if we see it as oh you know we're, we're just friends and and actually it's it's not about me influencing you i i get the, the role of a coach and again influence can be seen as a negative word but I think the role of the coach is to influence people and you can do that in, in a variety of ways. But actually just, just the fact that I don't think it ever occurred to me at, until that point that people might not think that relationships are important or they are kind of, I would argue that the very heart of coaching, how can I try and get you to change and improve and develop and do all these other things that I want you to do without actually having any sort of relationship with you that just hadn't, hadn't really registered with me. So, um, I guess my question within that is actually how maybe how do you guys define relationship? Because it does seem to be this really kind of catch-all title. Um, and actually, is is there something a little bit more specific that we're missing within that? Yeah, I actually responded to Dan's um, sort of provocation. I think that, you know, it's a good grenade to throw in. And I think some of this comes from the fact that on Twitter and in other um, environments, when something that's quite complex um, not necessarily complicated, but complex uh, and involving multiple features and facets and dimensions is discussed. Then you throw in a word like relationships as if it's the, the panacea to solving all of those things. And naturally people go, well, it's just not that simple. And it isn't that simple, um, but it is sufficiently complex if you get into the depth of what relationships are and how they're performed and enacted and made and remade and co-constructed in the everyday ebb and flow of, of interaction that's going on. And to, to come to this question about what relationships are, um, again, it's interesting because there are various different perspectives. When you actually boil it down, I think Crosley offers the best sort of perspective on this when when he talks about this idea that it's essentially a, a history of interaction and the expectation of future interaction so i can i can interact with somebody on a one-off occasion without any anticipation that i'll ever see it, see them again that's not necessarily a relationship that's an association or a, an interaction at that time but when i become tied to people as coaches typically are because they have coached them last week they're expecting them to turn up this week and there'll be another session in a week's time, and they're probably going to be there for that as well, then how I'm acting today is built upon what I learned about interaction with that person last week, and then also how I want to interact with that person a week down the line, because whatever I do in this situation is going to shape and inform their treatment of me and my treatment of them and our expectation of how we'll next be together. And it's, I think the great way to think about this is somebody wants 
was was interviewed and they were talking about what made their their marriage so successful and they said oh we never go to bed on an argument and when they asked them to sort of explain that a bit further they said well I hate the feeling of waking up in the morning and not knowing how we're going to treat each other and I think that highlights this idea that that a relationship is something that has a history but it also has a future and we need to be acutely aware of that as we're acting in the present I like that um, I remember that thread as well, actually, on, on Twitter. I think I may have contributed myself. It was interesting. It was, it was almost as controversial as it depends versus ecological dynamics. But we won't go down that route because that was a, that was a long few days. Um, the, um, I think for, for me, um, Ed has mentioned Crossley. Um, I'm using a fair bit of his work myself in my own PhD. Um, so I think my own perception of relationships is fairly similar in that this idea that we are agents in constant web of relations with each other and I think the web bit is important for me if as a coach I have a relationship with that player and, that, and, and that's what mo much coach education would, would encourage us to focus on improve the players but my perception on what's important in that coaching environment the way that I coach what I believe to be right and wrong is influenced by so many other things as well my education my family background and my interactions there my history of interaction in that those particular environments will impact upon the way that I work in my own coaching environment and similarly with that player um, their parents beliefs um, what they did at school that day and again those histories and then future interactions impact upon the way that we interact in that particular moment as well so I think it's probably important to recognise that relationships go beyond just a simple dyad of the, the two individuals and it goes sort of um, impacted through our participation in other networks. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that sometimes the environments that we are in um, and the relationships that we have to form are not of our choosing. So sometimes as coaches, we are plonked into an environment or we have to interact with people that we may not choose to do so in many other situations so sometimes for us as coaches that can become incredibly stressful um, and we either choose to either ignore those individuals maybe to the detriment of um, the people that we're working with or we have to choose to interact with them and moderate our behavior which again when we're driving home in the car becomes a really horrible thing and uh, you know come you see the whatsapp light up again you think oh god here we go and it ruins the rest of your evening so I'm sure we've all been there. I'd completely agree as well. I think um, I really like the analogy and, and the, the sort of understanding of relationships being more than just a, a diet. I think often research and, and some development opportunities can position it as um, a very dyadic position where you, you need to, to influence and foster good relationships on an individual level, which is clearly very important. But I think understanding, as um, Ed and, and Ryan have mentioned there, the wider um, almost spider's web if I've heard a few people talk about it it has um, and, and how you're connected to those different individuals and what the implications if you do influence or not one individual how can that also have a knock-on effect on other people so I've, I've heard a good um, example from a number of contexts where head coaches will purposefully communicate with the leadership group to sell um, a particular strategy, a particular um, tactic that they want to employ before they will then present that to the rest of the group. And, and in and through the process of doing that, they then perhaps have a, a more effective or a better influence on, on other people than if they'd just gone in and presented that 
to the whole group um, initially, you know, without that, that consultation. And I think often understanding from some work that, that we've done in the past, how our interactions can have an, an unintended influence um, to what we had originally pictured. I think as, as coaches, we often have a, um, a mental understanding of what our influence is. And if we've delivered a particular behavior, whether that's prayers or whether it's standing back and, and observing, doing nothing, we often assume that our practice has had a particular influence when actually the perception of that um, practice from the, the other people involved, if that be um, the players, assistant coaches, um, board of directors, they can often have a very different picture of, of that specific behavior, that, that specific practice. So often how our behavior goes beyond um, just influencing, as others have mentioned, the, the dyad and how actually a, I think there's a really good example as well from um, some research where um, a player that or a coach that I was um, studying at the, at the time that we were working together had praised an athlete or scolded an athlete in the, the middle of the pitch. And when I'd asked him about his intentions behind that, it was to... Um, foster a change for that player who was in the middle of the, the field only. Uh, and when I interviewed some of the other players who were sitting on the sidelines watching, they said, oh, well, that made me think about how I was then going to play when I went into um, to bat later on. So I think having a wider understanding of um, perhaps how our behaviour can have that unintentional influence and, and almost a knock-on impact um, on a number of different individuals and, and trying to anticipate that before we behave and then reflect on that after we have behaved can often be a very important thing to, to consider. I have to say, I, I love the web analogy and I'm just thinking, you know, you, I would say you, you see quite often, certainly in kind of, you know, junior rugby clubs, you'd hear stories about there's there's been a bit of tension almost and suddenly someone's fallen out with someone and the coach has left, but he's taken, you know, he or she is, has taken half the team with them to wherever they've gone to coach next. And you just go, well, yeah, perfect example. How interconnected is that? That it was their son or something and then all their mates and it's just that, that kind of, yeah, that ripple and knock-on effect, which is um, very interesting. My last question on this was, I am already conscious of time, um, but do you think, and, and this was just a real random thought around, I guess, as a coach's uh, epistemological position potentially, or just their kind of um, preference for how they engage with athletes, do you think coaches that would maybe put themselves at kind of the IP end of the spectrum might be less enthused about relationships? Do you, do you think actually kind of our approach to um how we see human beings almost would kind of then define potentially the importance we put on relationships. If I'm a little bit more of a directive coach, does it bother me less that I don't have a great relationship with you because I'm just thinking actually, well, my job is to give you this information and for you to process that and deal with it. Whereas somebody, I guess, maybe kind of towards the other end of the spectrum might be a little bit more, I've got to have a really effective relationship with you because I need to be able to talk to you and question you and, and understand what's under the hood almost. And, and I, I've got no idea if there's any research out there on it, but it was just one of those kind of thoughts that went, yeah, if there isn't, actually, it might be a, a kind of a fascinating area to explore into, but it's probably quite a big generalisation. I think you're absolutely bang on. The part of the work that we do through the module and the CPD that we've delivered across a range of different contexts to coaches working at a number of different levels the approach we take is to first set out if you like the, the default position that's often taken through coach education and um, some research in terms of how they present a picture of what coaching is and how coaching happens and where that suggests um, 
that the coach is somebody who is doing some stuff towards or at some other people, then potentially there's a big barrier there in terms of and recognizing that those people might do some stuff back to you <laughs> and, and that that might include aligning themselves with you. It might include um, resisting the things that you're, you're trying to do towards or with them. And that, that therefore the behavior you've done towards them wasn't an end point. It wasn't a, an event. It's the start of a journey that you're about to go on that, that could end up in various different, different places. And Adam alluded to that point before in terms of the unintended consequences um, of, of your interactions. And it's only really then, I think, when we've broken down, well, this is how coaching has portrayed, uh, is often portrayed. And here's a set of evidence that shows us that actually coaching is so much more than that, um, that we can then start to develop skills. Uh, and this is really the, the kind of practical element that, that then it's about developing a set of personal skills. So an awareness of oneself and, and our own behavior, um, an awareness of people and situations in order to, to recognize the dynamics that are occurring within that environment and the, uh, the different interests that are in play, then evidently there's the bridge between the, the self and these other people, which is the interpersonal skills that I think most people would recognize as being um, really important within coaching. And that those things coming together will then allow us to build the alignments and the alliances that we need in order to be able to enjoy an, an, a good set of working conditions, but also so that we can just get some stuff done um, and that that stuff it has some purpose and some intention. And um, I think when we get really good at this stuff, that we then maybe have some strategic direction that's aware of, um, if you like, thinking about what's coming over the horizon and where we're going to and what's coming next. Um, and, and I think those are those are the kind of things that that could be included more in coach education. But before we get to that, we've almost got to do what we've been talking about which is we've got to persuade people that coaching is a certain thing and maybe not the thing or the picture that's been um that's been advocated and promoted through uh, again not just coach education but typically the way that we talk about things as coaches almost as heroes and dynamic doers of things towards people and actually towards being collaborators in the production of, of a coaching process yeah, I think uh, I, I would agree with much of that. I, I think when you asked the question, the first thing that came to my mind was that word I used earlier about neo neoliberalism and around how coaching generally has been viewed as um, something that is measurable, um, linear, um, almost dispassionate. Um, coaching is, is important to improving sports performance, so therefore let's measure it and um, ensure that we can find some outcomes that can justify either future funding or someone going on a coach education course and I think sometimes, and again, it's not saying that um, the things that are, you know, sort of come out from that kind of approach to coaching aren't important. Clearly, the X's and the O's and the monitoring the effectiveness of different behaviours and so on are really, really important. But I think sometimes by doing so, you um, you remove some of the nuance and the grey areas that actually is where most of our stresses lie. Um, the, the bits before the session, during the session, and after are quite often those. Did that player quite get that? Um, what was that parent really thinking when I came out with that coaching point that I thought was world class, but they were looking like they were frowning and all those different bits and pieces. So it goes back to, again, to what, what we value in the coaching environment. And perhaps the context is really important here. 
Um, perhaps in some performance environments, it may have to be that way, um, that we're looking to, to measure and find rules to what it, whatever it is that we are coaching. And perhaps there is more flexibility in a community, in a grassroots environment to form those more meaningful relationships, um, particularly because you aren't likely to get sacked if your results don't go the right way. But um, yeah, for me, it, it, it certainly comes back to that fact that the nuance is important and the context is actually really important in terms of um, defining how we can kind of shape that moving forwards. Yeah, I think for me, the um, both the roles and the role norms that people interpret are really important um, in understanding how and why people might behave in, in particular ways. And I think how athletes would frame the role of different coaches, be it a head coach and an assistant coach. Um, and for me, I think the big thing here is, is the power dynamics between those individuals and, and understanding how people experience and, and enact their roles on the back of that, how they feel that they fit into a squad or, or what they feel their particular role is as a coach or indeed as a, an athlete who, um, as Ed and Ryan mentioned, you know, might have... Um, some resistance against what a coach has advocated or a desire to follow to the letter what has been said. So understanding um, their own perceptions of, of the power which they afford to people, uh, I think is, is really important in, in navigating some of those complexities and understanding why people would or wouldn't follow a, a particular instruction, a, um, a piece of praise or feedback or whatever that might be. Fantastic. I, I think this is something we could probably talk about for for a lot a lot lot longer. So, um, well, I guess we'll kind of park that one there. But um, Ryan, we're going to come across to you when I, I think kind of some of this stuff probably links with uh, with your piece as well. So, uh, yeah, very interested to see where we go. Yeah, um, I think it will. Um, a lot of the things that um, come out from the thing that I've chosen would certainly come out once again. Um, Rather than choosing a film, I was going to choose Will Ferrell's Kicking and Screaming. Um, I'm not sure if any of you have seen that. Um, there's, there's loads of lessons around kind of how coaches act on the sidelines. So, and um, I've used it in a few lectures myself, normally to just lighten the mood slightly. But because Ed went for, for a film, I've gone for an academic paper. Um, it was a particular paper uh, written by uh, Professor Paul Potrack. So we've mentioned him already. So probably tell... Um, our influences uh, straight away it was one of those papers that really resonated with me because it was um after reading about the first couple of pages it was like a finally someone has you know said what we quite often always think um it talked quite a lot about um Paul's um early career in the game of football and the professional game and working in academy football and how quite often wearing that club stadium jacket with the logo on helps to fuel the ego and the identity and for me that 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 was quite um an important read in that first page it was like a well that's how I got into doing that kind of coaching as well it was wearing the jacket became like a badge of honor um members of the family were really proud that you'd got these certain level of coaching badges and you were working for a respected local football club and that it was almost like a oh you've made it well done um, and for me, the, the X's and the O's in terms of coaching was never something that really worried me at all. Um, I always felt that I could go and do my research and find out a particular session and edit and adapt it and use it as much as, um, as well as I could. But the thing I always found difficult was those relationships that I was forming whilst I was coaching. This was the same in performance as well as participation environments. So I always felt that this was a bit of an underlying issue in coaching, the, uh, the realities, the messy nuance, the 
um, the micro-political games, that, that word will come up again in a minute. But it was this whole feeling that um, coaching wasn't necessarily um, always about you and the player and the sort of the actual practice working. It was about the relationships that you form with your co-coaches, the relationships that you form with those players and the ones you got on with, the ones you didn't get on with. And I, what I really liked, the first thing that I'll probably highlight about this particular article called Handshakes, Barbecues and Bullets. Um, it's an excellent piece of work. Um, the first thing that really sort of shines for me is the fact that Paul, as the coach, um, really shows honestly, honesty and vulnerability. And for me, there's coaching can be quite an ego driven activity um, is quite a lot around, you know, kind of the coaches, coaching courses that we've done, the places that we've worked, the people we've interacted with. There's lots of coaches I know they've got their little black book of players that they've worked with and uh, developed and are now playing at a really high level. And what I really like about this article is the, the vulnerability that he shows and kind of saying, well, I didn't like this or I found this challenging. And for me, that there's not enough of that in coaching. And one thing that we debated with our first year students only a couple of weeks ago on a coaching module was that very topic is how coaches can actually use reflective practice in a meaningful way to show vulnerability. So that was the first thing that really sort of came out to me. Um, the other one was this use of micro politics. And um, what Paul talks around uh, about in the article is the fact that um, he felt he was constantly looking over his shoulder because there was this, he perceived to be a, a rather calculating and uncaring environment um, and, and a lack of collegiality. So talking and going on a little bit further from what we mentioned earlier around um, coaches being um, looking over their shoulder and influenced by interactions with other people, he mentions in the article about how he would be in the middle of running a particular part of the session. His co-coach would see maybe the first team manager or the academy head walking over would notice and see his opportunity to pounce and we kind of go, right, Paul, that's not working. I'm just going to change this bit up here. And so that that was a natural, you know, sort of a, a thing that he had experienced on quite a few occasions. And what he found as well is that some of the, that became norms and accepted practices and to the, to the point where he actually did that to a young coach himself, because that was the environment that had been created by that club. So he talked about coaching environments being quite competitive, ego driven, and I love the fact that he showed the honesty and the, vulner and the vulnerability, um, which kind of shed a new light on some of those emotional features of coaching practice. But it also really highlighted the fact that those relationships, um, for me, could go beyond coaching player or coaching athlete, because it's quite clear that your relationship with co-coaches is important. And this particular article set me really on my way with my own PhD journey through looking at Paul's work of the negotiated, the sort of difficult and the grey and the messy features of coaching to say, well, can we go further than that? This particular article um, went beyond coach-athlete relationships into coach-coach relationships specifically. But then I started thinking, well, what if we go further than that? What about coach-player-parent? What about coach-player-parent performance director? What about coach-player-parent performance director scout? And then I've opened this whole whole Pandora's box in my own head now, um, using the work of Crossley. And perhaps Paul's article for me was the one that set me on the way to saying that it's absolutely fine to now start looking at the grey areas in coaching rather than looking to measure it. Um, I really like the fact that it used sociology as well, as opposed to, again, kind of looking at some rather linear forms of, of measurements in coaching uh, that we quite often see in maybe coach effectiveness and coach behaviour literature. 
So using the sociology to look at human relationships with each other. So it's one of my favourite academic articles. And what I would say is that academic reading, even for someone that works in this particular area, can be really hard work sometimes. This one isn't. I really, really enjoyed reading it from start to finish. And um, it's one that I often pick up um, on a regular basis and share with students and say, look, if you really want to talk about the realities of coaching, read this. Um, so I love it. And I'd be really interested to hear what um, the rest of you think about it as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, I have to say it is a relief when you hear academics say that academic literature is hard to read. Like I'm, I'm not the only one sat there struggling going, I, I don't know, did they just swallow a dictionary? Why can't they just write in normal, normal talk? I have no idea. But yeah, no, so that's good. Um, I guess my first kind of question on this is, has has vulnerability become a bit of a thing? Is it like the new popular um, thing to talk about? It, it just seems, and I, I, lots of these things do come in trends, but I've just seen it being discussed and, and yeah, I guess verbalised and shared just far more. And I'm just wondering whether you guys, has that been from your perspective driven by there's more literature around it or there's more interest in it? Or has it just got to a stage where maybe the nature of coaching has got to a point where we need to show that we are vulnerable and, and around kind of the mental health piece and, and all of these types of things and, and relationships and everything else. Is it just kind of, is it the current solution to where coaching finds itself? But it, it definitely in my head seems to be just a, a very, not a buzzword, but it does seem to be kind of the buzz thing, I guess. It's probably three things that might be influencing that. Um, the first one is, like you said, some of the, the wider mental health agenda. And you think, well, how much pressure are we putting onto our coaches? Get qualified, stay qualified, etc. cetera. Uh, and perhaps coaches almost seen as being service providers um, for, for young people in particular. Um, I pay my subscription fee, so what do I get for that? Um, I think there is a growing sense of, uh, of emotions in sports coaching in the, in the coaching literature. Um, led by people like Paul, Robin Jones, Chris Cushion, et cetera, um, who are driving some of this area of work. And yeah, I think, it, I think it's a growing area, but I think there's also um, perhaps a, a sense of using reflective practice more meaningfully as well. So rather than evaluating sessions, um, which may focus more on performance outcomes and did the players enjoy that session and what did they get from it and how did they improve? is actually encouraging the coach to look within on a more regular basis. So whilst it might not be sharing your experiences with other people as much, but at least thinking on a more deep and, deep and meaningfully, uh, meaningful basis on how we may in, be impacted upon the decisions that we made that in during that particular session. Why did I feel uncomfortable at that moment? And how can I contextualise that ahead of my next session? I think for me, it's, it's really interesting um concept and, and something that it's interesting to see when coaches might show vulnerability and, and to whom um, because if I think with my sort of refereeing had on from um, if you show too much vulnerability to players um, then they will quickly jump on that and um, that can become a negative thing for, for you going forward however if you show some form of vulnerability and, and do that in a manner which um, is supportive of, of you and, and your interests and you are able to, to trust those others that you are sharing that, that vulnerability with, I think is, is key. So if it's, for example, you know, for me, a throwing on the halfway line, which, which I get wrong and, and hold my hands up and say, look, um, I've got that wrong to the players. They're probably 
some might might have a bit of a whinge, but they wouldn't have hopefully too much of a whinge at that. Whereas if it's a, a key match decision, a penalty, a red card, and you show vulnerability there, then I think that has a very different impact, a very different consequence. So uh, in terms of coaching, for me, it's it's interesting to see when coaches might suppress emotions, when they might not show their true uh, or their inner um, sort of emotions, how they adapt those on the outside, if you like. They, they put on a, a different front perhaps and, and why they might want to do that or equally when they do try to change their own internal emotions um, what might the reasons be behind that and, and again why they're doing that in, in relation to the people that they are within that context alongside. It really comes back to this point from earlier that there isn't a magic bullet vulnerability doesn't matter you know you could list any element of, of coaching and it isn't the one single right answer and just as, as, as Adam's pointed out, there's all these potential avenues that demonstrating your vulnerability could then lead down and, and none of those are unproblematic. You know, they, they all carry some potential for you know, beneficial influence, non-influence, negative influence um, on what's likely to then happen moving forward. And within a group of athletes, which we typically um, work with within team sports, um, but even within individual sports where they're coached simultaneously, you know, that, that group of people that's experiencing your emotions is interpreting that. So it's not the emotions that you show with an intent or the emotions that you hide with an intent aren't things that doesn't pass kind of unfettered to the, to the person as if you've just implanted it, your intention in them as well. They, they are interpreting it. They're thinking about it. They're, making sense of it and they're wondering about it in ways that then shapes what how they make sense of it and do things with that um and i think the the kind of core message for me in relation to all of this is if somebody says to you i'll tell you what you know is going to sort all of your coaching problems out then just immediately stop listening to them and walk away because they're probably going to tell you some nonsense and it's possible that what they're going to talk about is a product that they're trying to sell you in some way as well um, I think that's where a lot of the the current literature, the, the really rich, rigorous, original and sophisticated research that's being done, frequently when you read it, provides this almost um, little statement in it that says, and incidentally, this is just one element of the bigger picture of coaching. We're looking at this in real depth, but we're not claiming here that this is the singular truth or the all-encompassing right answer to things. It's just nudging our understanding forwards a bit. And equally, I think mentors and coach educators are getting better in, in practice environments at, at being able to support people to say, well, let's look at this for a few weeks. But keep in mind that it doesn't mean that all that other stuff goes away. It's just that maybe we can dial up our attention on these sort of key areas that might make a real difference to your practice. And then look, let's look at how it takes time to embed and integrate those things that we've now learned about into the, the wider repertoire of the coaching that you're involved in. I think um, Paul makes that point at the end of the article as well. You know, it says, you know, we're not saying that all coaching environments are calculating, uncaring, competitive, you know, but many coaches may feel this way. I mean, what's nice is that at the end of the article, there's three sort of short stories from different coaches who kind of subscribe to that same way of thinking. He said, yeah, I felt that too. Um, interestingly, in my just kind of maybe taking on just a 
another step is that this way of kind of experiencing the coaching environment is something I've noticed on through interacting with some of the participants, of my PhD as well, where some of these coaches um, in that particular environment are saying, I felt horrible about this situation. I've got, I've got a, a difficulty with dealing with that individual. Um, and I can ask why, why, what are you doing to resolve it? So, well, I'm not, um, have you told anybody? No, cause that's not what we do. Um, so how are you internalizing that? I'm finding it very difficult. Um, so what's the impact on the coaching environment? Well, well, we just don't talk. Um, we don't get on. We should be. Um, so actually what I do is I use someone else as a broker to get to them. So someone is like a mediator in our relationship. So what that does is it, it changes the very shape of the constitution of that network. So that particular coaching environment is impacted upon that one difficult series of interactions between those two individuals has meant that everybody else now needs to moderate their behavior around them so that changes changes the very network so i think um i think where this particular article um sh you know shed a light on the, what i could be doing for my own kind of work moving forwards was one showing that the vulnerability and the nuance but then got me thinking about well what about that complex web what goes on beyond that and how do we use maybe individuals to bridge those complicated relationships and how do we encourage coaches to maybe talk about it a bit more as well uh, where do you think that comes from in, in terms of an environment where you you are looking over your shoulder or you don't trust people is is that created is that is that somebody at the, the kind of the top of the pyramid um fostering that or is that just potentially ignorance of that and, and it's just human connection or a lack of and personalities clash and all those types of things I, I appreciate again it, there's there's going to be a lot of nuance in there but it, it, from your experience is there a does it tend to resolve around a figure and and how they kind of direct things or is it is it just as I say kind of human nature and we just got to manage it as best we can this is going to seem like a cop-out but it's a bit of both um sometimes I think um, our interactions and, the, and the, the culture and the norms and the accepted practices will, will result as a, um, from our interactions with each other in that coaching environment. We will help to shape um, whatever is deemed to be appropriate practice. However, I have also noticed the, the impact of an individual dropping into a particular environment, like a performance director, who will help to set the tone of that. And they will, through their guidance, will change the interactions and the shape and the beliefs of other people along the way so yeah that is a cop-out isn't it I'm, I'm actually saying it's both I, I think it makes sense that it can be both it, it's never I guess going to be kind of either or but it yeah I, I often find that because you get that kind of it, it in my mind it always comes back to being a perception as well and I've had the same thing, you know, the, the, the DOR turns up and is on the touchline and suddenly coaches start doing some stuff and even players start doing some other things. And, and you chat with the DOR afterwards and you just go, oh, what did you think of that? They're like, no, nah, I wasn't even watching. Like I was, on, I was on my phone. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm, I'm just there to be seen. But suddenly because people think they're being watched, and I can never remember whose kind of rule it is of, of observation that inherently as soon as you observe something, its behavior changes. But you're only ever seeing or having kind of your perception of somebody else's influence on something. So yeah, I guess it's always going to be complex, but it is fascinating the impact that that can have in, in terms of going, I guess, does he talk about um, in the article about whether that's actually a positive at all? So I'm wondering whether an environment where you are on your toes 
but you feel a little bit of pressure, does that enhance performance potentially? Or actually is there, is there evidence that says that can be a, I guess you can go to a point where it's too far, but is, is there too much pressure and is it then a negative element of, of that kind of interaction? Um, I'd imagine for many, it, it could be a, a stimulating feature of the coaching to keep you on your toes and make sure that you know, you're always ready to, to be a little bit better than everyone else. But I think ultimately from this article, it came across that it wasn't necessarily a world that he wanted to be part of anymore. He, he, he found that it was impacting upon um, his ability, therefore, to maybe mentor other young coaches himself, that those norms and accepted practices um, had crept into his own behaviours. So therefore, he decided to walk away from that particular coaching environment because he didn't feel like it was, you know, kind of a, a road that he wanted to continue walking down. Um, interestingly, I know other coaches that have done the same thing. So this isn't for me anymore. It's just become way too competitive. And um, I think that seems to be more, more prevalent in coaching and performance environments in particular, where those particular positions tend to be highly sought after, you know, that whole the stadium jacket, the, the free tickets for the, the senior games, um, the in football in particular, the folded over tongues and the chewing gum and, you know, the, the, the particular identity and the, the value that you have of being a performance coach at the professional club. And, um, yeah, I, th I think for many coaches, there, there's always a constant feeling that you're looking over your shoulder. Now, whether that comes from the club environment, as in the, the constant measurement and the, uh, the CPD and the, the checking and the tick boxing of performance, or whether that is internalised by the individual from just noticing the fact that there are many other coaches with your qualification, there are many other coaches with experience similar to yours and that you're a couple of bad sessions away from being given the elbow um, or being, in this case with the article, you know, kind of um, dumped on by one of your supposed colleagues, you know, sort of someone that's stepping into your session and saying, no, that's not very good, is it? I think sometimes coaching can feel like that, um, where we're constantly worried about what people think of our performance. And I think, um, yeah, again, for me, in terms of my own research, this opened a door. But in terms of my own coaching, it did as well. It, it made me sort of think, well, actually, it's okay to feel this way because there are other coaches that have felt that pressure too. I think, yeah, for, for me, I love this article. It's, it's one of the brilliant bits about the way these sorts of articles are written because I think there's sometimes a perception that, that coaching research is, is challenging not just because it's written in a particular language and because we're using precise terms and terms that have certain meanings, but also because sometimes the research is done in a lab and we don't coach in the lab typically. So the, the brilliance of this sort of research is that it's, it's actual coaches talking about intellectualizing and thinking deeply about their own practice. And, and in this case, talking very honestly and authentically about things that don't always go very well. And I think that's, again, sort of linking this back almost this this heroic image of the coach as the sort of omnipotent in control authoritative figure who's leading dynamically forward and everybody's going to follow is problematic because it it means that in reality when we are finding things difficult and tough we often feel that that's something that can't be shared because it's um, a chink in our armor and it and it might either lead to um, our athletes or our, um, our co-coaches or other people to take advantage of that in some way. Um, and this sort of striving for perfection um, and at, at the cost of everything else, I think has, has become much more publicly uh, or there's, there's much greater public awareness of it now. 
And I think what it's doing is it's creating spaces where coaches recognize the value of having trusted critical friends, mentors, collaborators to whom they can turn in order to share and to, to say, I'm really struggling this, with this this week, or do you know what? I've, I've never dealt with this before. I don't know what to do. Um, and certainly in my own experience as a, as a mentor and as a, a critical friend, it, it, again, it, it doesn't matter really what level that's at. People are dealing with these things right from, well, I'm a mum and I turn up on a Sunday and I help out with the session to um, I'm an elite performance coach and equally I'm really struggling with some of this stuff and I'm questioning and I'm unsure about what I should do here what should I show and what should I hide and what are the potential consequences of that and I think this is where there's great value then in creating spaces in coach education university degrees and CPD for people to be able to talk very authentically and openly about the things they've got right and the things that they've got wrong and about how they've experienced the all the bumps and the, the, the slides and the opportunities and the challenges so that there's a more authentic picture painted of the realities of doing coaching. Um, because I think we'll have a much happier coaching workforce. And I don't just mean that in terms of professional paid coaches. Um, but I also think we'll have a much, a much happier sporting context. Um, because, and this is, this is one of the, I suppose we might get off on a tangent here, this is one of my bugbears around things like athlete centeredness. So is, does anywhere athlete centeredness say this is exclusively about the athlete and, and actually all the sport should only be about the needs and expectations of the athletes? Well, if it's only about that, how many volunteer coaches are we going to be left with? And, and, and maybe we need to think about this in a much more um, level playing field or actually recognize that Everybody who's taking part in and facilitating sport across you know, all domains and levels, whether it's officials, whether it's administrators, coaches, parents, and athletes themselves, they're all people and, and they all have rights and, and therefore those rights present certain obligations to those that are interacting with them. Um, and, and I think you know, sport as a whole could take a really good hard look at itself in, in, in those um, using those frames and and again drawing upon some of these stories which provide excellent evidence of the the messy complex realities um, and equally good evidence of the potential and the opportunities that are there in ways that we could shape sport to be a better thing moving forwards i i, I think that kind of almost brings it back full circle in my comment around the um I guess it being a, a vulnerability being a, a kind of a buzzword or a thing at the moment, I kind of almost see it similar to athlete centeredness that it, it was all good intentions and, and well-reasoned and everything else. And then I kind of the coaching population pick it up and just turn it into this other thing. And, and this, this kind of the cynic in me says, how long till I hear coaches saying, Oh, I'm a, I'm a vulnerable coach and is in a Twitter bio. And it's, it's kind of just takes on this life of its own where actually the original meaning and intent just gets a little bit lost and it's not impactful. And then we actually start rejecting it because everyone goes, well, it's just a fad. What does it actually mean? Um, and then move away from it. And I just, I think we'd be missing a huge trick if we did that because I think it is so, so important and coming back to, Ryan's point about that kind of self-reflection being deep and it being meaningful I th- it's so so crucial 
And I, I, I really hope this doesn't become that next kind of, oh, yeah, well, everyone's everyone's vulnerable now. Isn't it great? And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, you've seen that vulnerability thing. Like, no, 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 we need to do something else next. So um, I don't know how we avoid that, to be completely honest. I guess it's it's keeping it maybe a little bit more grounded in in the reality um, and understanding its purpose. But, yeah, that's that's kind of my little soapbox moment, I guess. Just to, to maybe offer some comment on that, I think, part of this is about developing really good science communicators and, and people who can, rather than in a 240 character tweet say, so I've learned about this thing and it's the answer to whatever, or can put on a one hour CPD session where they tell you the, the three things you must do in order to be the next best whatever coach. That actually we need to present things, like I said before, more authentically. Um, and we need to start with an image of, of coaching being this complex, social, iterative um, engagement with a range of different people. And that, that was, that's going to bring certain opportunities and challenges and that we can be, become much more capable and astute of recognizing the different um, ways in which those interactions and relationships can go. And, and I think what that will then avoid is this as you said, this sort of looking, you know, it's, it's almost like that marginal gains idea or, or, you know, well, I'll marginally gain by I'll just do this thing um, and I just add this little extra ingredient in and then, oh, well, that seems to have stopped working now. So I'll get this other ingredient and that now becomes part of my, part of my recipe. You know, there, isn't, there just isn't one single ingredient that's going to, to make, make a good cake. Um, and I think you're right in the sense that you know the literature of athlete centeredness when you actually read it has some really really useful things to say but how many people who use the word athlete centered in their description of how they coach have read any of the original literature of athlete centeredness versus they've heard the word athlete centeredness on a course and the logic of it seems really relevant and i like that idea of course it makes sense i want to be centering my practice around my my athletes but then suddenly that's their label that's how they coach i'm a questioning coach i'm a games-based coach and then you turn up and watch them coach and you think well that's not a game i've not seen you ask any questions so far or all of your questions are just <laughs> like passively worded um instructions or 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 whatever to to the athletes and and i think this is again where you know context and and educators really knowing their subject and also knowing the people that they're, they're trying to teach this subject to and support to learn so that, again, the, the development of coaching is built around the needs of the coach in that particular environment rather than just some stock knowledge that is deemed to be important for whatever reasons. And so there's, you know, there's, I think there's a risk always of, of seeming bitter and that we're painting this really negative picture of coach education and, and also of coaching. Um, as if it's all bad, but there's great opportunities to do some fantastic things about this. Um, and it's really, again, about this generating a buy-in from people in positions who determine what is taught and how it's taught, um, that, that, that will be able to make that change. I think that, that's such an important point that um, where we can support coaches um, to become critical interpreters of information and of theories and of, of other practice to, to understand really what can work for me in my set of circumstances with my athletes. Uh, and I, again, I think as we mentioned right at the very start, 
acknowledging that one thing, even for the same athlete, might not work in five minutes down the line or, or in another session. So how can we sort of critically interpret and understand rather than just assuming that everything that we are told is uh, perhaps correct and, and going to work as, as the next golden bullet approach? I think where we can, and, and obviously we are, are trying to do this in all of the uh, educational approaches that we are taking to um, challenge views that, that are presented to us and, and critically interpret the next theory or the next um, sort of piece of evidence which is presented to us to really get to grips with that and think, well, how does this work and does this even work in fact at all for, for me um, when I'm operating? I have to say, Ed, just in your last comment, I'm, I'm thankful for lockdown because I'd have started to be a little bit suspicious. You'd have seen me coach otherwise with the, your comments around, uh, you know, says one thing, does another. That's always uh, <laughs> that's always an interesting one. Um, we'll part that there, guys. But um, Adam, we are going to shift on to you. Uh, what is it you're going to talk to us about? Yeah, so my um, piece is a, a book which I've um, started to, to read quite recently, and it's it's called Leadership. Contemporary Critical Perspectives by Bridget Carroll, Jaggy Ford and Scott Taylor. And I think for me, it really nicely um, takes a, a quite a fresh view of, of what leadership is and, and has some important implications in my view for coaching and, and how uh, leadership or coaching is viewed more broadly. So I think what the book tries to do is to reposition leadership and really ask critical questions about what leadership is. Um, it challenges some very widely held views about or, or beliefs which sort of dominate a lot of research, a lot of education um, and, and a lot of development opportunities, perhaps. And I, I really like this point. I think I'll, I'll quote um, more or less direct from the book and that they say leading is not a momentary activity. It happens over time, changing continuously, depending on place, who is present when leading is happening and the negotiation of authority. Um, so I think for me that really nicely challenges some assumptions about what leadership is and, and sometimes as we've referred to earlier this idea that coaches or leaders are heroic individuals who set a compelling vision um, and, and have these values which are, are unproblematically enacted perhaps um, to, to recognise the fine-grained details of what does leadership look like in different circumstances uh, and also recognising that followers our um, it could be athletes, it could be assistant coaches, or it could be flipped on its head. But recognising that followers themselves can also enact leadership um, and that the agency which followers have and, and possess to make change, I think, is, is really important to, to recognise. So I think the, the book also refers a lot about um, the fact that we're unlikely to identify leadership as, as being an essence of uh, a personality trait, a, a mysterious charismatic gift which people have or, or possess, um, an apparent ability to transform people and, and organisations or being a function of the brain. You know, some of those things are, are important, um, but I think it, it, it critically challenges those views and, and again understands what does leadership look like in context um, for, for different individuals in different ways. And I think it, it links, uh, made me think a lot about my own sort of PhD research and, and research which is ongoing post PhD about how we can critically understand influence and, and what actually influence is. And it speaks to a lot of what we've, we've discussed to now really, I think in that influence can often be considered something which is um, perhaps easy to, to understand and, and some people say sort of measure. But I think where we can critically um, 
understand and, and get to grips with what we view as, as our intended influence um, and what that looks like in the eyes of others can be very different. So thinking back to one specific example in, in the PhD where the coach had, the athlete had, had performed very well, um, taken a one-handed diving catch to which the, the coach had praised them and clapped loudly across the hall. And, and when I interviewed the two individuals, the player and the, the coach, from the coach's point of view, his intentions were to increase the confidence levels of the player, show to everybody else in the squad that that was was effective practice and that was you know considered to be the, the norm what people should aspire to. Um, when I actually interviewed the, the player and showed him the same footage back from that session and said, uh, well, before I even asked, had time to, to ask a question, the player said, um, oh, I didn't even hear the coach say that in the, the session. You know, I was just caught up in the moment at the time, just reflecting on, on the fact that I'd done something really well. So for me, that was a really powerful moment to consider and, and to challenge my own personal assumptions about coaching and, and influence to think often because a player has a smile on their face or because there, there's been a, an apparent um, observable change of some form that that has been our influence when actually this idea of influence is, is multifaceted and, and complex. And we as a coach play a very important role, but often a partial role alongside a number of other influencing factors or, or entities um, in that overall picture. So I think, yeah, to, to come back to the book a little bit, it, for me, it, it highlighted some of those power dynamics, those relationships um, between individuals the ideas of followers and acting leadership themselves, and really this move away from a hierarchical view of, of leaders as heroes to understanding that the social and the cultural context in which leadership occurs and, and a very critical or, or complex view of that. So I don't know if I've done that justice in terms of um, giving a, a synopsis, but um, it was it really resonated with me and some key messages, I think, um, to, to move forward with. Do you think leadership as a concept uh, concept suffers a little bit because it, it always seems to be quite black and white in its language. So it's, a, it, you know, there's a leader or there's followers. And as you said there, it, it's probably far more nuanced than that, that even followers have leadership. So I, I don't know, I'd just be interested in your experiences of it as a concept and how it, I guess, kind of lives within organizations or sport. Do, do people suddenly just go, well, that's the leader. And so, okay, well now I'm a follower. So we almost, deliberately adopt roles or actually is that just a perception of that and we're all still leading in some ways and influencing other ways and again it, I guess it can get quite messy but it always seems to be presented in a quite clean neatly cut there's one there's a line there's another um, yeah interested in, in what your thoughts are yeah I think it's it's a really um, interesting question Phil and I think you're right we do sometimes assume that leadership and followership is this crisply distinct category which people have and, and therefore they have certain roles which they should adopt or, or enact. Um, and I think what education is, is moving towards and, and what a lot of research, in, particularly in this area of, of critical leadership is moving towards is challenging some of those assumptions that um, followers almost don't have agency because we know that they do. They, they have the power to change in some cases um, to follow a, a particular instruction or some feedback in a coaching context which has been provided or to negate that. And um, I think, again, relating back to one of the examples in, in my PhD where um, two coaches presented very conflicting or contrasting views on the way that the, the game should move forward. Um, one advocating a more defensive style of play and one advocating a very attacking style of play. Um, and again, that the two players adopted very different approaches 
both went on to score hundreds in the, the, the respective game. Um, and for me, that was a really interesting thing to think about because as followers, they had um, enacted their own leadership, if you like. They had um, made decisions based upon the information, the, the constraints, the resources which they were within uh, and what had been sort of provided to them in, in feedback or suggestions. But as followers, they took on an active role within that. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. You know, we sometimes do in, in education or we sometimes um, in research as, as portrayed this view of crisply distinct categories. But I think, you know, they wouldn't necessarily exist in practice itself. It's, it's a lot more fluid and um, understanding, as I say, sort of the, the power dynamics and, and why people feel that they can do or, or can't do certain things is, is very important, perhaps. Do you think leadership groups can actually be a hindrance then as, as soon as we bracket a group as the leadership group? And, and I, I mean, there's probably strategies around moving people in and out of that group and, and various things. But I often think that suddenly if you're not in that group, then again, you're just you're you're kind of automatically you're defining yourself as well. They'll make all the decisions and, and they're the leaders. So I don't need to worry. And I, I just it, again, it seemed to be a kind of a very popular thing and, and everybody at community levels all the way up seems to have them and I understand I completely understand the role of a captain I think that's probably somewhat distinct actually the practicalities of needing somebody to make a finite decision on the field or, or pick up some of the responsibilities or that sort of stuff but I think the leadership group almost to me sits slightly differently but I'm not I'm not sure if it potentially creates um, as many problems as it could solve. Yeah I think it, it could depending on the Again, probably that the context um, that you are within and, and how that is positioned. I think it comes back to a lot of what we've spoken about um, in the, the really good discussions earlier in, in this podcast. In that, um, you know, where people can read the, the agendas of, of other people, where they can, whether that's hidden or, or espoused um, agendas which are, are on display, uh, and where they can can navigate some of those if people are trying to. to move into a leadership position um, and they, they sell their particular approach by doing that, then I think that can be, be very effective. Um, so I think, yeah, as you say, it's very different and, and for me, dependent upon the, the context that you are within in terms of how those, those relations between leaders and followers and it might well be the case that in one particular situation, somebody who isn't traditionally viewed as a leader takes more of a, a leading role and that is very impactful for the, the particular situation. Um, but again, I think, yeah, for me, it would come down to, to those power dynamics and, and how over time, rather than leadership being this thing which occurs in a vacuum away from those relations and away from um, the historical lineage of, of what has come before that, uh, understanding and, and recognising that to harness, hopefully, the, the best possible influence for whoever is enacting leadership within that particular situation, perhaps. It's interesting. Um I was really sort of um, interested in the the bit around the, the story with the coach, with the, the praise. Um, and it got me thinking about my own coaching practice. And um, it's interesting sometimes for community coaches where a parent may say something like, oh, you're really quiet. Come on, coach, you're the leader. Uh, and I'm sure many coaches have had a similar situation where someone would say coaches are the ones that beat their chest and, you know, sort of shout the loudest. And it's what you know potentially might be valued most by those particular parents uh, in particular. Uh, and I think um, I'm think for one particular episode I've I've had actually where the star player's parent made a similar comment around, "Come on, coach, you're 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 the one in charge. There, there are a try or two down here. Uh, you're the leader. Off you go." 
And I remember making a point at the time around making sure that the players could take ownership and they were the ones in charge. And then within a couple of weeks, I noticed that I was being a lot more shouty when this particular parent was around. And that was because I perhaps valued his opinion and maybe the conversation he might be having with his son in the car on the way home. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I kept one of my star players. So it got me thinking about leadership and actually being the fluidity of power around that and the resources that we're able to offer each other, um, what you can gain from adapting and editing your behaviour. Now, who's the leader in that situation? Is it me as the coach or is it the, the parent who actually has resources that I want, i.e. his son, because he makes me look like a better coach. So um, there's the vulnerability. So um, it's, I, I, for me, I, I, it gets me thinking about the fluid nature of leadership. I think I completely agree with Adam that um, it's, it's not necessarily held, held by one particular individual. But for me, I think the important thing with leadership is those resources that we hold and how that is the thing that's fluid and, and where, where the leadership and the power then becomes more influential. I think I'm just really conscious as well. Have you noticed that whenever anybody comes in, we always say, I think. So it's like, <laughs> that's always the initial, the initiation of the conversation. But the thing that, it, that Adam really sparked off in the way that he described what's in this, this book is about this idea that it's negotiation of authority. And so we're continuously negotiating that. And I think something that maybe counterpoints with what Ryan just talked about is that actually sometimes you're given the label. So if you are the head coach, there is a certain expectation that comes along with the legitimate power that you have in that role to do certain things. And I've been very fortunate in my experience to, to work and to be able to get access to some coaches who would be positioned in these very significant um, roles at the head of, of international organisations. And, and they have had really interesting approaches to their leadership, which, which recognised that actually they're not only leaders, they're also coaches and they're also managers of other people. So they have this real sort of hybrid identity. Um, and that at times, given the scope and the scale of what they do, they might actually have very little direct interaction with the players that are going out to perform because actually they've, they're organizing and they're manipulating, if you like, the chess pieces who are their assistant coaches, who are actually the ones that have a lot of the, the interaction with that. And, and equally, what uh, the discussions made me feel is that leadership looks very different in different situations because it's continuously been um, negotiated. And I guess the key element to that is it's been negotiated between people. So at times, one of these coaches that I was observing, um, they typically tried to adopt a um, quite a democratic approach to things. And they would that what that would look like was that they would ask lots of questions and they would try and get the players to come up with their own solutions to things. And it was a game in a very significant competition. Um, it was half time. They were losing against this team that they should probably have been beating. And the coach sat all the players down and said, okay, it's all right, we're going to work through this. But you tell me how we're going to do that. And, and the captain of the team kind of just said, no, you're the head coach. You're getting paid this much money. We've been trying to sort it out for 40 minutes. You bloody tell us the answer. It's your job. And, and yet that player and the players that were around there in a different situation loved the fact that this coach empowered them by asking them to solve things, by giving them ownership uh, over things. And I guess that's some of the, 
that's some of the complexity and the nuance that we often talk about. So when you when you say, oh, I'm, I'm an empowering coach, I empower people. All right, so you're reinforcing the fact that you have the power to give that power away then, are you? So you're actually the person in power. Um, and, and, it's, and this is part of the, the thing that we need to do within coaching is to unpick some of these simplistic ways of talking about the things that we do, the how and the why, as well as the what, and actually get into the nitty gritty of, well, we thought about this in its its proper context and what it actually means and is it going to come back that's the again oh yeah you're back there we go yeah sorry i don't know how much of that you missed uh, that's probably the kids watching disney plus i reckon damn, um. <laughs> it's the gift that has given so much and there's also the curse that's taken so much away uh, as long as it's the mandalorian <laughs> well actually it's world book day isn't it um and oh it's red nose day and so the kids are all wearing masks um so our eldest son his mask is going to be the mandalorian's helmet and uh so they're probably doing a bit of research on disney plus as we speak hence the poor internet connection research on disney plus i like that that's the kind of research i can get behind um i, I i'm kind of, again i'm conscious of time um but i've got kind of yeah it's not a small question so how how much we talked about influence quite a lot in in this kind of last section so how much influence um do we think coaches have because there are definitely days where I'd be walking around a club being like, yeah, like I'm, I've nailed this. Like I've absolutely nailed it. I've got, I've got all the stuff aligned that I want to have aligned. It's, it's absolutely rocking. And there's other days where you just go, would anyone notice if I wasn't here? Like everything I've tried, nothing's worked. No one's listening. I don't actually know why I bother. And I'm, I always kind of swing seemingly between the extremes of, you know the, the the coach is there to do everything and you have the power to do everything and then actually you've got you've got zero power if if nobody wants to listen to you so um then there isn't necessarily an answer i guess but i'd be interested in, in where you guys kind of sit on that um on that ratio actually how much can we affect and, and influence in our roles i think for me it's i've just <laughs> said already what ed's just made <laughs> you mustn't say i think <laughs> um yeah well in terms of coaching and understanding influence with players, I think understanding the different viewpoints of players and other coaches is absolutely essential rather than just taking a one-dimensional view of how you think you as a leader are influential. Well, that's very important. Also recognising from a player's point of view how they interpret and perceive that influence as well as others in that context. I think that from a few of the examples that we've alluded to throughout this discussion, that can often be very different um, in terms of the, the initial intention for behaviour or practice and the perceived or the actual influence of, of practice itself. So I think I would agree with, with what you said there, Phil, that influence can be very different um, on different sessions in different contexts. And I think for me, um, just bouncing on a few of the points which have been made just before there about people having different interests, a good coach would be able to recognize and build sufficient alignment of those interests. Um, you know, we referred to earlier about people having a desire to just be told what they need to do at a certain time, whereas other people want to be more, um, have more autonomy and, and more opportunity to make decisions. And, and for me, a good coach would be able to recognize those different interests and build sufficient alignment of those interests to work towards uh, what they are trying to work towards in recognition that again that's very complex there are a lot of things that can get in the way of us achieving our goals which we set out to achieve um, and 
almost orchestrating the, the distance between those goals and, and the gap that is created um, by some of those conflicting factors. For me, there's it goes back to the nuance again um, and, and the history of interactions with other people. If um, I've just come from a, a lecture and it's a really good one, one of the rare ones in the year where I've completely nailed it um, and I turn up at training my interactions previously that day have put me on cloud nine. I think I'm good at my job today. I'll go to training and my interactions with the players be positive. Again, it'll be on point, be some of the, the best sessions they've ever had. And um, similarly, if on a match day, I've um, had a bit of a stinker, if I've been the one with a whistle um, or if the game hasn't gone very well, um, I'll go into the clubhouse and if someone asks me about what do you think about the CPD coming up in the week or we need to get more coaches for this particular age group, I could look at it one or two ways. I could even say, well, people still value me today, even though um, I've been pretty poor at my own coaching role. Or people may notice the fact that I'm in a, a lower mood and have the emotional intelligence to perhaps recognise that, just tell me what I need to know because I, I just want to stop this conversation straight away. So I suppose similar to what we talked about in the first part with um, Ed and Remember the Titans, it was around the history of interaction. I think for me, the ability to influence and then lead others maybe as a result of not necessarily our interactions with that one individual or group of individuals at that particular time but how our mood has been affected by other things and other aspects of our life earlier that day um and i think yeah i can be very good or very bad in those situations based on what i've done earlier your summary seemed to nail it from my point of view phil sometimes we've got influence and other times we don't and, and therefore the question really becomes so what skills do we need given that we operate in these roles that carry certain expectations that we will guide lead shape influence coach manage people that the people that have have, have chosen and 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 are being paid perhaps to be in that space with us so again it comes back to these key skills which i think span what ryan and what adams just talked about this ability to read people and situations in terms of how, what is my potential to shift and move this person uh, and or to affect this situation in particular ways and what's happening now and what might happen further down the line so that I can think about how I might act appropriately and, and in ways that changes or moves that situation. The second component then I think is is then knowing myself. So I've got to have some intrapersonal self-awareness. I've got to know what I'm capable of and where I might be going out on a limb a bit and taking a bit of a risk and also where I'm really secure in, in the type of authority that I might be trying to negotiate in a particular situation, maybe the, the types of leadership that I'm trying to enact. And then this final component is actually the doing of it. It's the, the interpersonal skills the the strategies that i might use in order to get people on site um, to keep them on site and to repair our relationships and, and their buy-in where that is damaged because as we've highlighted throughout our our practice is going to be made up of alignment and conflict it's going to be made up of cooperation and resistance and it's you know, in, in some of the, the work that we've looked at, it's the resistance that's been the, the sort of star of the show and how, it, how is it that we've managed to lead our way through resistance or in some cases found that resistance so significant that actually we choose not to take part anymore. 
And then on the flip side of that, we've had examples where actually we've, we've experienced great cooperation with that and it's enabled us to, to go on and to do certain things and to pursue, pursue certain outcomes or interests that are not only valued by ourselves, but also perhaps the, the people that are around us. But equally, none of that's unproblematic. Um, so whether we're solving a problem or whether we're taking an opportunity, it's just moving us a bit further down our journey as a coach uh, to another set of situations where we're again having to read people in situations, think about our sets of skills and then make stuff happen. Um, and I think all through this, this conversation, this notion of self-awareness, social awareness, and then influence as a result of that awareness has been the, the real golden threads that unsurprisingly, given our, our own personal connections to, to one another, have been the, the shared sort of sites of interest for, for the conversation. Fantastic. I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, a, a really, really nice summary and a fun, uh, yeah, just a, a really rich, deep discussion. So uh, thank you very much. We'll, uh, we'll just fire in quickly in terms of uh, kind of part two and your recommendations for, for people. So um, Ed, we'll jump back to you. What is it that you're suggesting people take a look at? So I think it would be great. And I've mentioned this before when I've been at, um, at different CPD events, reading this book called Sport Coaching Cultures. It's a book by professors Kathy Armour, Robin Jones and Paul Potrack. It was published in 2004, uh, just the year after I finished at school, actually. And the year that really I started taking coaching seriously. It's probably the book that I've gone back to more than any other since I started um, really pursuing my understanding of coaching and I think it offers perhaps the most accessible resource for anybody who's looking to take a step beyond their existing um, learning and development and maybe towards learning more about the science of coaching and it it does this by keeping its core focus on the real world experiences of some amazing coaches that the authors interviewed including Sirian McGeekin and Bob Dwyer from rugby um, and then it uses their really rich stories and there's lots of sort of nuggets and insights in there in terms of what these coaches were doing in order to then examine some sort of um, crossing themes across the different coaches, different experiences across uh, pedagogy and the role of the coach and their interactions and, and their power, which tie into a number of the conversations that we've had today. So I think a great resource to be able to pick up on, on some of the threads that we've pulled out today. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Ryan, what is it that you're uh, suggesting? Um, Non-academic book. Um, it's called Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. Um, I think in line with some of the discussions that we've had around coaching, perhaps being slightly ego driven on occasions, a bit calculating and uncaring, how coaches are constantly under ever greater pressure at a range of levels to be a particular person or to act in a particular way that this particular book just reminds not just it's not about sports coaching but just reminds individuals just to take a step back sometimes press pause and for me if I'm linking that to coaching it's okay to scroll by that particular argument that might be happening on social media it's okay to not engage in that CPD event if you've already done three this month it's okay just to have a really bad coaching session it's around there's messages around there it's about just being yourself being authentic and to just feel grounded and press pause now and again. So I think that's really important for coaches. Nice. Love the sound of that. Thank you very much. Adam, finish us off. What are you saying? 
think I'd, I'd like um, Ed's suggestion as well, and he's probably still in one of uh, one of mine is sports coaching cultures. I think that the sociology of sports coaching, um, Robin Jones, Paul Potrack, Chris Cushing, and Lars Torronglin, um, is another really impactful source for me. And again, got me thinking about some of these issues, some of these um, concepts, and really nicely relates to the discussion today of how coaches can. Um, perhaps understand uh, some theory and, and, and an applied manner as well, how that can impact practice, uh, how we can think with those as tools which might help us in certain contexts and, and certain situations. Um, alternatively, I think there was a, a keynote speech from a conference that I was at a few years back in Worcester um, from Keith Davids and, and colleagues, and that's constructed in sports coaching. And for me, that was a really nice um understanding again of, of their view of skill acquisition and again how that can be applied to different situations um, interactions between task individual and, and the environment as well so those would be my two can you sorry it cut out slightly just as you said the name of the keynote kind of speech who who was that by and what was it called Keith Davids and colleagues um, and it's constraints based, based methodologies in sports coaching Fantastic. Love that. Uh, gents, this has been awesome. Um, as I said a couple of times, I could have yeah, carried this on for a long, long time. And uh, I think we've covered some fantastic stuff. So uh, a big thank you to you. I'm going to round up the roundup. Uh, to everyone listening, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for their time and contributions to a, a really excellent discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like and share. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. 